questions. Welcome back to Dante's of the Divine Comedy 2019, Lecture 10, Bernetta Latini, The Sodomites, Usewurst, and Jerion, Cantos 15 to 17, Slides 168 to 187. Very quickly before we get into Circle 7, Subcircle 3, I want to do a brief review of the first two subcircles of violence. I want you to recall, and I'm going to have to turn through quite a few slides here to get back to the first slide here, that when we got into subcircle one of the violent, that that is the violent against others. The violent against others are then subdivided into three specific sorts of sinners. Highway robbers, like Oedipus Tyrannus, who was himself a murderer. Murderers and tyrants. So there are three types of sinners in the first subcircle of circle seven. Remember also that subcircle seven is mostly featured or mostly featured within the third river of four rivers in hell. It is the boiling river of blood, Phlegathon, and that the sinners in there are submerged based on how much blood they spill during the course of their lives. So they are submerged up uh, to their ankles, if perhaps they only spilled a little blood, up to their chins, up even to their foreheads, if they spilled quite a bit. The two specific sinners that we talked about uh, were Alexander the Great, who is a tyrant, as well as Dionysus the tyrant of Syracuse. He was also a tyrant. Sadly, Dionysus was the student of Plato, who would later imprison him, and Alexander was the student of Aristotle. And I told you the funny anecdote that it, it is said that Aristotle, when, or excuse me, when Alexander on campaign would find a new species of animal, he would send it back to his old teacher, Aristotle. Unfortunately, what we are beginning to see is that part of the circle of violence is uh, there seems to be sort of an act of violence between teachers and students when students do not learn the proper lesson of the teacher or, and this is what we'll focus on today, when the teacher does not teach the proper lesson to the students. And I'll talk about how that relates to the sin of sodomy when we get from this review up to Canto, or excuse me, Circle 7, Subcircle 3. I also want you to remember this now. Part of the punishment of Subcircle 1 is that centaurs with bows and arrows shoot arrows at centers who emerge from their proper depth of the boiling blood, and that there's also an enraged minotaur there uh, as well. And so, again, we see all these hybrid creatures in violence, as if they are themselves violence against nature, representations of violence against nature, something unnatural. And so the next sort of hybrid we see are the harpies. Remember that the harpies are in the branches of the forest of the suicides. The forest of suicides is itself um, described positively or negatively. Who recalls this from Monday? Yes? Negatively, by negations. In fact, non, 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 non. Nessus had not yet reached the other bank. Bang. No path had left its mark. No green leaves. No branches straight and smooth. No fruits were there. Do not have holes so harsh and dense. And so it is a place of negation. And so we talked about how suicide is itself a negation of the will by the will itself. And that, that is the problem with suicide for Dante. There are also a second sort of person there who do not turn into trees that require pain in order to speak. They are called the squanderers. Remember that the squanderers are torn apart by hounds. And now, something that I know is very important to you is 
Remember where both of these punishments come from. Dante got the idea of turning the suicides into trees from the idea of Polydorus from Virgil's Aeneid. Remember, Polydorus was a young son of Priam who was betrayed and then was killed and then turned himself into a talking bush that bled and then spoke to Aeneas when he had a branch taken off of him because Aeneas did not know that he was actually once a man. The second punishment here, which is the squandering one where people get ripped apart by animals, comes from Ovid's Metamorphoses. In Ovid's Metamorphoses, he tells a story of a young hunter named Acteon who, while on a hunt with his hounds, hunting deer out in the woods, comes upon Artemis by accident. She turns him into a deer with the mind of a man and then sicks his own hounds on him to rip him apart. And so it's almost like he gets ripped apart by his, either no fault of his own or by his own fault, depending on what level of analysis you look at the situation. If you, if you look at it as he did not mean to see Artemis but then got punished, perhaps it's not his fault, but if you look at this story meaning Perhaps when you engage in some sort of sport that involves danger, that danger can turn around on you. Like if you're a surfer and things are all good, what can still happen to you? Even though you're shredding the gnar. Shark can attack you. Happened in Encinitas last year. Absolutely so. Especially in cold water like ours. Great whites. In any case, moving on. Sub-circle three, which we're going to be focusing on today. Burning sands with burning rain. If you stop for one moment, 100 years supine on the ground. The first person we met here was a blasphemer. Ah yes, remember this. Just like in sub-circle one, sub-circle three is split into three. Two different sorts of three. It is itself the violent against God, nature, and art. We have one representative of each of those. The violent against God are the blasphemers. The blasphemer we meet is Capanius. Capanius was Fulminated by Jove, which means, who remembers what that verb fulminated means? Yes? Basically just like destroyed. Oh, it means something slightly more specific than that. Yes? To be struck by lightning, or colloquially how we use it these days, is to get lit up by someone, to get torched, to get burned, to get roasted. Exactly so. And in case Capanius got roasted, and thus he roasts for all time. And thus he roasts. The second sort of person here is those violent against nature. They are sodomites. And now, sodomy is technically the sin of homosexual intercourse. Why is it a sin? I've had to think a lot about this because the person that Dante puts as a sodomite is his former teacher, Bernetto Latini. And now, the historical record does not say anything about the sexual orientation of Dante's former teacher. So it must be that he is considering this sin in a symbolic way. This is what I think he means by that. Just as two people from the same gender cannot produce a new life from amongst each other, and so you might say that their relationship is sterile in that respect, so does a teacher who does not teach appropriate truths teach sterile and dead things. So does a teacher who does not teach truth not produce fruit in the same way that two people of the same gender cannot produce offspring. And that is what I think Dante is doing here. That is the only way that it makes sense in any way because, again, 
We do not know uh, really that much about Brunetto, but we also know that there's no evidence that he was a sodomite. And as you can expect, the scholars have looked into this quite a bit. The third sort of sin, violent against art. Those are the usurers. Usury is a biblical, is a major biblical sin. In fact, if you read the Gospels, usury is, uh, there were usurers, they were money exchangers, they're people that lend money at interest. And they were within the Jewish temples during the time of Jesus. Supposedly he threw them out. And so, how's that violence against art? Well, rather than producing something, which is the idea of manufacturing, all they produce is debt. Debt is itself a negation, like suicide. It is something that you lack. It is a big problem in this country, too, especially for young people, because what debt do most of you expect to have at some point, but you will have trouble paying? Yes. Student debt. Student debt. And isn't that funny that it's just assumed that you're going to have that? How are you going to pay it? Do you have a plan? No. <laughs> and we're just okay sending you out there to get it, huh? That's sort of funny. Well, we're thinking about your debts in any case. The problem with usury is, what happens if you can't pay it off? The extra interest. And also, if you had to borrow money from somebody in the first place, how do you get not only that money back, and then the additional money charged in interest in order to pay that person? The situation can become very ugly. In any case, it is considered a violation of art, because one is using the mechanisms of business to make money, but without producing an actual creation. All you produce is a lack, or a deficit, as it is called, through interest. Hmm. But let's go back to our example of a sodomite, Brunetto Latini. And we're going to read this quote together. And when that family looked harder, this is Canto 15, line 22, I was recognized by one who took me by the hem and cried out, This is marvelous. And I want you to know, this is Dante's teacher who he liked. That spirit, having stretched his arm toward me, I fixed my eyes upon his baked brown features so that the scorching of his face could not prevent my mind from recognizing him. And lowering my face to meet his face, I answered him, Are you here, Sir Brunetto? Sir Brunetto, respectful way to address him or disrespectful? Very respectful, very much so. In fact, Brunetto is one of the, I think there are either five or six individuals in the Inferno who received the formal U in, uh, in Italian. And in fact, English used to have a formal U as well. If you ever read something that's Middle English or even Early Modern English, if you call someone ye, that is the formal, respectful way of address. If you call them the, that is the informal, not respectful address. Uh, when we go through the Canterbury Tales, uh, a little bit. I'll show you a couple lines where that happens and it makes a difference. In any case, Sir Renato. And he began. What destiny or chance has led you here below before your last day came? And who is he who shows you the way? He doesn't even know his Virgil. Can't be that great a teacher. There in the sunlit life above, I answered. Before my years were full, I went astray within a valley. So the reason Dante's here is not because of some virtue as was assumed by Cavalcanti di Cavalcanti, but because he went astray. He's being shown the terrible, <laughs> he's being shown the terrible outcomes his life could, uh, could move towards based on his decisions, not based on his fate. <clears throat> Only yesterday, at dawn, I turned my back upon it, but when I was newly lost, 
He here appeared to guide me home along this path. And then again, and I want you to start noticing the errors that are piling up with Bernetto, and I'll help to analyze them for you. But And he to me, and this is his most famous quote, and it sounds great, and many things that are false and deceiving sounds good, but what is the outcome of his words? And he to me, if you pursue your star, you cannot fail to reach a splendid harbor. If in fair life I judged you properly, I'm not going to read much more than that because I really want you to focus on what he's saying there. I think when you read this at first, you think, that sounds like good advice. I think you say, that sounds like something a teacher would say to you. Follow your heart and you'll always go the right way. But what if your heart is moved in the wrong direction? Well, then that's not very good advice. My goodness. If you pursue your star, you cannot fail to reach a splendid harbor. If in fair life I judged you properly. There's one bit of this where he gives us a clue that he has contradicted himself. Do any of you see it right there in that last line? Yes. If in fair life I judged you properly. So he's saying he's correct if while he was alive... He judged Dante correctly, his talent. What is a strong argument against the fact that Brunetto judged anything properly in his life? Yes? The fact that he's in hell. The fact that he's in hell. So, the fact that he is in hell is a strong mark or indictment against his judgment. So, when he says this to us, are we supposed to think he's correct or incorrect? He wants us to think he's correct, of course. But is he? He followed his star. Where did his star lead him? Right down to hell. Is his judgment crystalline and clear or suspect? It's very much suspect. And so the idea here seems to be this. Can you even just blithely trust the words and ideas of your teachers? Absolutely not. What do you need to be able to do for yourself? That none in hell can do, because they are denied the good of it. Yes? You have to be able to think for yourself. Right. And I think part of the idea here is this. Even if somebody gave you lots of good, true ideas, does do good ideas even guide you better than your own ability to see and think for yourself? Ah. Well, I'd like, I'd like you to sit with that. I want you to sit with that. All right, so Bruno Latini, Brunetto Latini, let's talk about it. His name means Brunetto the Latin, and Brunetto actually means small Bruno. Edo is a diminutive in Latin, like Eni. Um, and so, uh, which I think Eni, is it Eno Ito in Spanish? There we go. And so his name is essentially small Bruno the Latin. Brunetto Latini was an actual teacher to Dante as well as to Guido Cavalcanti, his former best friend who he exiled, who then died from malaria. He wrote a work called The Treasure. In Italian, it is Il Tesoro. In French, it is Le Tresor. Uh, in our language, it would be the Thesaurus. Thesaurus means treasure in our language. And so, uh, a Thesaurus is a treasury of words. In the same way that Dante's work is a treasury of stories here. Because that is, of course, what he's doing in an encyclopedic way. He is putting stories together for us to gather. In any case, 
One of the problems with what Brunetto talks about, and I'll mention this briefly again in the next slide, is that he seems to deny the good of the intellect himself. He seems to think that one simply needs to follow one's fate, or follow one's fortune, or follow one's star. Well, if your fortune is already set for you, do your choices matter? No! Everything will simply happen in the way it is supposed to. Well, the problem with a teacher saying this to a student is that the whole point of a teacher being in the presence of a student is to help develop the what of the student? The mind. Exactly. And so, is the point of a teacher to fill your head just with ideas in order so that you don't have to think? Or is the point of a teacher to teach you ideas so that you have the words necessary? or the images necessary, or the materials necessary, in order to think. The problem with Brunetto is he doesn't seem to think that teaching matters at all. Because if you are, if you are fated to do everything you're already going to do, what can a teacher do for you? Nothing! Which means, if you believe that as a teacher, you're probably a very effective and good teacher, outcomes-driven, probably a pretty bad one that might end up in hell. The bad sort, of course, of course. That does seem to be the idea here. The idea seems to be that though Brunetto talked a big game about being a great teacher and seeing talent within Dante, what did he actually do to contribute to Dante's abilities to his intellect? And it does raise questions about what you are really doing in a classroom with people. Because students will ask me. They'll ask me every year. They'll be like, Mr. Schmidt, do you think that teaching is mind control? And I say, no! That's what bad teaching is. That's what propaganda is. Telling you what to think. It's like, the whole point of teaching is to teach you what to think? How to think. Just like if you're a musician, you're not forced to learn the music of other people so that you only know the music of other people. You learn the music of other people so that you learn to play an instrument. You learn the ideas and the stories of other people so that you use, learn to use your ultimate instrument, your mind. And the more songs you know, the better an instrument player you are. The more stories, the more words, the more thoughts you have access to, the more encyclopedic is your mind. Interesting. Your fortune, continuing on with Brunetto holds in store such honor for you, one party and the other will be hungry for you, but keep the grass far from the goat. This is, this is sadly Brunetto talking about the fact that Dante will be exiled because of the factional conflict between the white Welsh and the black Welsh. For let the beasts of Fiesole find forage among themselves, he's talking about the Florentines, and leave the plant alone. This is a metaphor suggesting that Dante is a plant growing out of dung, dung being the Florentines who exile him, the plant, which is actually beautiful and fruitful, happens to be Dante. The fruit of his intellect happens to be this work that we are all reading and uh, consuming together now. In any case, it has very humble origins, because apparently it comes from what? Dung. Hmm. All right. Uh, we're not going to read through this, but essentially Dante responds and he says, I'm ready for my fortune. I'm not rebuked by my conscience. I stand prepared for fortune, come what may. All right, cool. Last thing I want you to notice about Brunetto, again, seeming to be one thing, but actually being another. 
This is how the canto ends. And again, this probably seemed really nice to you. This whole interaction probably seemed really nice to you. Uh, something else to mention. Something else to mention. Brunetto is down on the sands while Dante is slightly above him. This is an inversion of the teacher-student relationship. You are all whatted right now. Seated. I am what right now? Standing. I am therefore above or below you at this moment, physically speaking. Above. That is the proper relationship between teacher and pupil. I am supposed to be like the origin of a river that flows downward into your seas. In any case, in this case, Dante is above his teacher. And so there is an inversion there too. A second small inversion is that rather than looking up to his teacher, now he looks down. It says in reference, reverence to his teacher, because you do bow to things you are feeling reverence for. But what does it mean to look down upon somebody? Yes? To, disappointment is close. To look at somebody with contempt or disdain. To look at someone as if you are better than they are in some way or another. Physically, morally, intellectually. In any case, and then he turned and seemed like one of those who raced across the fields to win the green cloth at Verona. Of those runners, of those runners he appeared to be the winner, not the loser. So what does Brunetta look like as he strides off like Achilleus striding off in Book 11 of the Odyssey? Yes? He looks like a winner. He appears like a winner. He seems like a winner. Is he a winner running across the burning sands of hell where he is? No. Well, what does this tell us? This is a microcosm of everything that's wrong with Brunetto. He seems like a good teacher. He seems like a winner. The things he say, says seem true. And yet, what is it that you have access to that allows you to see through appearances and his veil of illusion? Yes? We have our minds. And so, even though he does not intend to teach us, does he teach us if we use our minds to see what he truly is? Yes. So can even a bad teacher be a good teacher, so long as you use your mind? Yes. And so keep that close to your heart for your many years of education that still remain to you. In any case, let's move on to the uh, uh, to specific sodomites. Alright, so we saw Brunetta Latini, and now we have two more sodomites who were mentioned much earlier in Canto Six by Chiaco. Uh, two of the four leading Florentines who were amongst the blackest souls in hell. Remember, Farinato was one of them. <clears throat> a guy named Mosca, who we'll meet in Canto 28, is another. And then we see Tagayo Aldebrandi and Jacopo Rusticucci. And actually, they, as you can see, Dante is slightly above these burning sands. <clears throat> they are themselves making yet another infernal trinity, like the three heads of Cerberus, like the three sub-circles of the inferno itself. Like the three heads of Lucifer, we have three sinners who have to run in a circle while holding hands talking to Dante. The reason they run in a circle is to do what? Is to keep in motion while also doing what? Like a merry-go-round. To stay in the same place. They are just like Every sinner in hell. 
moving without getting anywhere. Like someone who thinks or sees without thinking, you might say. In any case, they talk to Dante. He really wants to go see them. They're Florentines. They were his friends. Uh, there are some commentators that make some comment. They're really stretching it to suggest that perhaps it is the case that Dante had feelings for one of these men and wished to join him. That This appealed to a sensual or carnal desire. But again, we don't have any historical evidence for that claim. So it's just speculation. Um, but I might say that anytime you see a friend of yours, regardless of the terrible things they've done, probably you still feel some affection for them and want to see them, especially if you're in a dangerous, scary place like hell and they speak the same language as you. Uh, it's sort of like when you go to summer camp and that person you don't really like at school is there, but since you're sort of familiar with them, they become your best friend. Anybody ever done that? Anybody ever had that happen? Maybe it happens at work, something like that. Interesting stuff. Whenever the dominance hierarchy gets changed up, your feelings towards people change, which is very odd, very odd. In any case, as I told you earlier, the idea Dante seems to have about sodomy is that the problem with sodomy is that you do not bear fruit from sodomy in, uh, in a very direct way in terms of having progeny. So if you're a teacher and you don't bring forth fruit, that means you don't teach truth. You don't teach something of value. You waste people's time. If you're physically a sodomite, well then you don't produce offspring. You don't produce children. And so uh, there, there's a biblical maxim that Dante clearly has in mind here, which is be fruitful and multiply. Well, if you are a sodomite, you are not multiplying. You are not being fruitful in that respect. And so to be violent against nature, art, or God, we're starting to see what violence is here in general, is to twist the use of something in a way that damages it or worsens it. So if you are a, say, tyrant or murderer, you twist the use of your spirited soul, your courage, to harm people rather than to protect them like a Stianax, defender of the city. If you are a sodomite, you twist your, uh, well, at least in the case of Bernetto Latini, you, you twist the relationship between teaching and student to where you no longer freely offer information that helps to develop someone's mind, but rather just tell them dead nonsense, which will, I don't know, get them to a place just as bad as the one you happen to be in. And then, usury is twisting the art of business, the art of creation, in order to create something which is not a deficit or interest, uh, or excuse me, debt. Alright, this piece of apostrophe is very important. I did not mention the third one, because we had to go quickly past it. But this one, you must know, because it is the first time Dante does something. I want you to pay close attention to it. I should have highlighted this, but I need you to highlight this with your mind. Faced with that truth, this is 16.124-132, which seems a lie. Again, this, this seeming, this appearing, we're getting very much prepared for fraud, the eighth circle. A man should always close his lips as long as he can. To tell it shames him, even though he's blameless. But here I cannot be still. And by the lines of this my comedy, reader, I swear, and may my verse... Find favor for long years that through the dense and darkened air I saw a figure swimming up enough to bring amazement to the firmest heart. He's talking about Gerion, but he's just done something for the first time in this apostrophe. Do you see what it is? Yes? Is it the one who uh, can't write the comedy? 
he named his book. That's exactly right. This is the first of two times you will see him name his book, and he calls it comedy, comedia. And something interesting I'll tell you is, you see on the front of your book that it's not called the comedy, it's called the what? The divine comedy. This is what lets you know that this work is a piece of finery beyond the normal pale. The word divine was added later by Boccaccio, who was himself a 14th century Florentine poet who wrote the Decameron. Sometimes I forget it could have been Petrarch, but I'm fairly certain it was Boccaccio. And so he didn't call it the Divine Comedy himself. It was called the Divine Comedy by another one of his friends. He called it the Comedy. That's why you'll sometimes see it referred to as Comedia. Very good. Very good. All right, and just to quickly mention the usurers, we've talked a little bit about them. They have a slightly different punishment from the other violent against God, nature, and art. They have weighted bags, which have their family crests on them, hung around their necks, which pull their heads down, so that they literally cannot see past their own noses. It's like they don't understand the effect they're having on the people around them. Hmm. Very interesting. Very interesting. Hmm. This image also shows you, of course, Geryon with the face of a just man. Dante being held by Virgil uh, to keep uh, Dante to keep somebody between Dante and the sting of fraud, the scorpion tail of Geryon, which is also part of the teaching art. Just like Virgil spared Dante the petrifying gaze of Medusa by holding a cloth in front of his face, so will he spare him the touch of fraud. It's almost like part of what you do as a teacher is you show people representations of terrible things rather than the terrible things themselves, so that when they actually encounter terrible things, like death and betrayal, that they are, like a physical body, inoculated against them. Because if you hear 10,000 stories this year about people dying and being betrayed, and you get betrayed by one of your friends, what might you think? I'm different from everybody who's ever existed, or I've just joined a very good company. <clears throat> You've joined the best company. In any case, in any case. Uh, just very quickly, uh, a quote about the usurers, just so that you have more in your mind to represent about them. When I have set my eyes upon the faces of some one, or some on whom that painful fire falls, I recognize no one. But I did notice that from the neck of each a purse was hung that had a special color and an emblem, and their eyes seemed to feast upon these pouches. Very like Midas, in any case. Alright, quick review. We're going to review three slides over the next two minutes or so. We started with this, so I'm going to go very fast through this. Review of Circle 7 before we discuss Gerion and spiral down to Circle 8. Subcircle 1, violence against others. Sins. Murder, robbery, and tyranny. Specific sorts. Uh, river number three, Phlegathon. It's boiling blood. The sinners that we meet there, Alexander the Great and Dionysus. Uh, I have Sicily written there. It's Syracuse, actually, but I'm not going to try and trick you between the two. The creatures we meet there are centaurs who shoot arrows at emerging sin sinners, and also a bellowing minotaur who Virgil says to scram, and he does. Subcircle two. We run into the violent against self people. Two sorts of sinners, squanderers as well as suicides. The location is a dark forest of negation. No path 
was there. No green leaves were there. No straight branches were there. Center we talked to, Pierre Delavigne. Creatures in the trees, harpies. Tear at them every now and then. In order for these centers to speak, they must have something torn from them, and they must bleed and they must feel pain. Because they have given up their ability to freely speak, because they have given up the thing that allows you to be free, which is your willpower, which is used by your intellect, which they're denied the good of. In any case, the two punishments we see here of the squanderers and the, the suicides are um, the suicides become trees, that's based on the idea of Polydorus from Virgil's Aeneid, book 3, and the squanderers are torn apart by hounds, that is based on Ovid's Metamorphoses, and the punishment of Acteon from there. Circle 3, or sub-circle 3. The violating against God, nature, and art, specifically the blasphemers are violent against God, the sodomites are violent against nature, and the usurers are violent against art. The connection, Dante says, between God, nature, and art is that art is the grandchild of God. Meaning, God is the father of nature, and nature is the father of art. Meaning, that Dante believes that the purpose of art is correct representation of nature. Which is very provocative, because is then producing a fantasy story to people, which does not literally represent reality, a corruption of art, or an expression of art? Is Dante himself committing an act of violence by using his mind to produce this book with all these fantastic imaginary images in it? Or is he doing exactly what one must do in order to teach a lesson in a, from a long time ago in a place far, far away. Hmm, something worth thinking about. In any case, the sinners we run into here, the blasphemer is Capanius, the sodomites are Brunetto Latini, Tagayo Aldebrandi, and Jacopo Rusticucci, and we don't talk to any of the usurers. They don't have much to say. They're just looking at uh, whatever is in those pouches of theirs. And so, which are apparently something similar to what's in the magical box in Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. In any case, then we meet Jerion, another creature that will represent appearing one way and actually being another.